we've taken our seats atop this great mountain peak of Scripture where the Apostle Paul is giving us a view of the fullness and the extent and the greatness, the, the all-sufficiency of the salvation that we've received in Christ. We, we have, in essence, unfolded our lawn chairs. We've, we've been able to sit back and we've just been, been surveying all that we can see. And at first sight, you'll remember, as we looked all around us, all we see is really just the fullness of Jesus Christ Himself. Christ is the fullness of our salvation. Salvation is not merely something that God does to us, but it is God Himself coming to us and being Himself for us and in us in the condition that we find ourselves in because of sin, our fallen condition. And even as we've zeroed in on certain aspects of, of this salvation, here in this verse there are, there are at most four little details of salvation, but we've zeroed in on them and, and every single time we still just are looking at Christ. We're looking at some aspect of His person and work as He's been given to us and that work and person has been made over to us and that fills out our salvation. We've seen that Christ is the wisdom of God. Christ is the righteousness of God to us. Christ is the sanctification from God to us. And now we come to the final aspect of, of what is an extremely concentrated statement. Just, just words in a, in a series. But the, the final word in this statement is the word redemption. And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification, and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Again, if we, we sort of splice the verse a little bit to, to focus in on that word, we could read it this way, And because of Him, because of God, you were in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, that is redemption, or even more, Succinctly, because of Him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us redemption. Christ Jesus became to us redemption. Coming out of the heart of God like a, a gushing river or fountain of salvation, every true Christian finds himself or herself in this this spiritual condition presently, right now, in this moment and forever, this spiritual condition that the Holy Spirit has breathed out in human language using the phrase, in Christ Jesus. We, we are in this indissoluble, unbreakable, eternal, spiritual bond or union with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and because of that union, because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, because of that union, Christ is now redemption from God to us. Or to use the, the same phrasing I've been using for, for in recent weeks, God has given us a person who is our redemption. So we stand atop this Everest of salvation. We look out as far as we can see, as high as we can see, as far down as we can see, in every direction, all that we can see, we survey the landscape, we, we see 
Christ, something of Christ. But here in particular, we're zooming in on this word, redemption. The question is, what does that mean? What does it mean that Christ is our redemption? I'll use the exact same outline that I used last Lord's Day. I want to try to answer, explain or open up the passage by answering two questions. Number one, what is redemption? And then number two, what does it mean that Christ is our redemption? So the, the bulk of, of the message will be answering the question, what is redemption? And then we'll see how, how Christ is our redemption. So number one, what is redemption? We cannot begin to consider what Paul means when he says Christ is redemption from God to us. We can't understand what that means if we don't have a general knowledge of the words and concepts that Paul has in his mind when he says redemption. The, the, there's, the, the wording here and the concepts or the idea, the theology behind the words have laid a foundation in Paul's thinking. He didn't go to a dictionary or a thesaurus and say, what would be a good word to describe this? He already has a theology and theological terms from his Bible that he uses to then explain how Christ is our salvation. So we have to understand that, this, this verse in those terms. Words and concepts, and because of what we might call liberal drift, it's important to understand or think deeply about the word redemption, and other related words and ideas. We read the English word redemption, which other words could mean or a definition could be simply deliverance. And so some have taken the word redemption slash deliverance and they've just applied it in a very vague notion, a deliverance of some sort. All men recognize there's a problem with the human race. They recognize there's a problem with the world. They're looking for some way to get out. And so when men create religions, they create a religion that offers some sort of deliverance. And they, they might even use the word deliverance. In that sense, every religion has its own redemption, its own deliverance, its own way out, so to speak. And they would say, well, Christians just have their own idea of, of deliverance. Christians figured out what they believe is the way out, the, the way to something better, the way of escape. Redemption. This is their idea of redemption because the word could, could be interpreted that way, redemption or deliverance. But the word itself is actually more forceful than that. There's, there's more to the word and more to the idea behind the word than just deliverance. And that's why we have to be careful with just open, opening up a concordance or a lexicon and saying, well, the word means this. Well, we, we, Paul has a theology behind his words. The word that's used here is an intensified form of another noun which refers to releasing something only when a ransom has been paid. So we could say very briefly at this point, redemption means to obtain by ransom. And that explains why other words from this same family of words in the Bible might often be translated simply with ransom. Now we know what a ransom is. You've probably heard stories of a kidnapper who leaves a ransom note. What's happening there? 
One person has stolen another person. They're holding them hostage, and they leave a note. And the note says, here's everything you have to pay in order to get your loved one back, to get your husband back, to get your child back. Here are the, the, the stipulations. It's a ransom note. The ransom is what you must pay. And that's the real picture behind this word, scripturally speaking. To redeem or to ransom in scriptural language means to buy back or to buy out of. That's the definition of the word. Now we, we would often say to redeem means to buy. You go to the store, you have a product, you get a box of Fruit Loops, you give them however much Fruit Loops cost now, $7. You give them the money, they give you the, the, the Fruit Loops. You've just redeemed the money for the cereal. And that is sort of the picture to buy, but again, it goes further than that because the word means to buy back. Those Fruit Loops were not yours from the start. They belonged to the store, and you just redeemed your money and you got the Fruit Loops. But this word means to buy back or to buy out of. It means to buy back literally something that belongs to you. So to redeem or to ransom is not just to make an offer. Hey, we'll give you this for that. And it's not even merely to hand over the asking price. Here's the money. It goes even further. To redeem is actually to receive the thing paid for. When you've gotten it, then you have actually fully redeemed it. It's, so, so something redeemed is something gotten. Follow me? Something gotten. For example, in Ephesians 1.14, Paul's talking about the Holy Spirit. He says the Holy Spirit is the guarantee, the earnest, the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. That word acquire is the same word, redeem. But that word, you, when, you, when you hear acquire, you, you're thinking, I've got it in the bag, I'm driving home. I've acquired it, I've gotten it. That's the picture behind the word redeem. In that text there, an inheritance is something that is ours until we acquire it. An inheritance is something that is probably legally, rightfully yours. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee or the down payment of that which is already legally, rightfully yours proves or that holds us over, so to speak, until the time that we come into full, actual possession of the thing, until we acquire possession of the inheritance. That's the picture of, of a redemption. The idea behind redemption is encompasses the, the completed work of buying back something and actually receiving the thing itself. I got it. That's redemption. And it also assumes or implies that there's a right or a title to the thing. You've redeemed what's yours. To redeem or to ransom is to take possession of something that is yours by right or by title. You can see how important this is. The, the biblical idea of redemption is, is far more rich, far more personal and specific than just a general deliverance from the, the hardships of the world. It's, it's very specific. Now we, we see this as those words begin to take form in concepts that are attached to the words by the Holy Spirit in Scripture. And as we saw last week, these themes begin in the Old Testament in types and shadows that are then, fi they, they, they find their fulfillment in the New Testament. So let's, let's trace, we got a, a picture of the words. 
Let's trace the theme or the idea behind these words from the Old Testament into the New Testament. As I said earlier, Paul's theology was derived from the Old Testament. He was a Christian, but by, by heritage, he was a Jewish man, previously a Pharisee, steeped in the religion of his fathers, which was rooted in the inspired Word of God entrusted to that people. Paul's Bible was what we call the Old Testament. And it's from there that he had de developed this theology of redemption. Again, it was, it's not just words. There's a theology behind this. Take the law, for example. In the law, we see a very important system set up to ensure that the land that had been allotted to the various tribes would stay with those tribes perpetually. Leviticus 25.25 says, If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what, is his, what his brother has sold. And you could read Leviticus 25 as other instances of this. But here's the picture. This man has fallen on hard times. He's poor. He's got to pay his bills. The only way he can pay his bills is to sell his property. So he finds somebody, hey, you want to buy my property? Sure. He gets, the, he gets the money. He can get himself out of debt. Well, now that property, in many cases, has been sold outside of the allotment of his tribe. God wants to make sure the land stays with the tribes. And so another man, a redeemer, a family member, a kinsman of his, could come along to th that second party and say, hey, I'm a redeemer. That land belongs in our tribe. So let me buy that land off of you just to get it back into our, our, the allotment that God had given to us. So you've not lost anything. My, my, my brother who fell in hard times, he's been able to pay his bills. And the land continues where it's supposed to be. Now we don't have time to unpack all of this, but an amazing thing was when the year of Jubilee came, all deals were off. Everything goes back to where it, where it began. But this was redemption. This is how they understood redemption. Later on in the Old Testament, we see an application of this law of God in the well-known story of Ruth and Boaz. You know the story. Ruth and Naomi, they return back to their homeland, widows, husbandless. They had, married, they had been married to a father and a son. Their husbands died, so they come back into the land. They are the rightful owners of this property that had belonged to their husbands. To, to come in and redeem them or to redeem this land also meant that you, you pretty much took on yourself the burden of Ruth and Naomi. These, these women sort of came along with the deal. You took responsibility for the mother-in-law. And we see in Ruth chapter 3 verse 9, Boaz asked Ruth, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. In other words, you or kin to our family, you, you have the right to come and purchase this property and take care of us, this property that had essentially fallen in, in disrepute or disgrace. By the end of the, the story, you know what Boaz did. He, he played the role of the Redeemer. Ruth 4, verses 9 and 10 says, Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon, that would be the, the father and the two sons, the land, I bought the property. Also, Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers. 
and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So Boaz comes in and he, he plays the role of the Redeemer. He proves himself to be a very worthy and godly man. A lot of times we, when we think about buying property, we think, man, I would love to have a deal like that. Somebody just walk up and say, hey, if you want to buy it, it's yours. But that wasn't the deal here. Um, Boaz wasn't exactly hitting the jackpot in our way of thinking. He was purchasing land, but he was also taking upon himself the burden of marrying a Moabitess and tending to her mother-in-law. He expended a great price in order to take on the burden of another man to perpetuate the posterity of another man, the posterity of the people of God. Boaz showed himself to be a small picture of the one of whom Job had spoken long before the giving of the law. When Job referred to God by saying, I know that my Redeemer lives. Now Job was not a, was not a Jewish man. This is, this is before the law. But Job referred to God as his Redeemer. And he says, and at, la- at the last he will stand upon the earth. For Job, God was the original Redeemer. And then we come along and we see Boaz. We see the fulfillment of the law. This was just a picture. And that tells us that what we're dealing with here in redemption is just like we saw with righteousness and sanctification. These pictures are actually teaching us something about God himself that then play themselves out in our salvation. Remember, God is righteous. He requires righteousness. We don't have righteousness, so He provides righteousness in Christ. With sanctification, God is holy and pure. He requires holiness and purity. Well, we can't produce that on our own, and so the the fullness of the grace that is in Christ is imparted to us so that we are over time made holy. Here, God is the Redeemer. We need redemption, so He gives us redemption in Christ. That's the picture. Though redemption starts in the law, Job spoke of a Redeemer long before the law was written. That is a reminder that the law was given to teach us about God. The laws about redemption were to teach us about God as the Redeemer. And for the faithful Israelites, they would have understood this. The picture was obvious. God is the ultimate Redeemer. We know that because that theme is picked up in the Psalms and in the prophets. And they would ascribe redemption to God and call God the Redeemer. Psalm 19.14 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. He doesn't say Boaz, my Redeemer. The Lord is my Redeemer. In Psalm 103, verse 4, He is called the Lord God who redeems your life from the pit. He buys it back. Isaiah 41, 14 says, Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 59, 20, And a Redeemer will come to Zion and those in Jacob, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And we know this kind of language and this imagery stemmed all the way back to the Exodus. The prophet Micah, or God speaking through the prophet Micah says, Micah 6, 4, For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. So the, the Jews were not strangers to the idea of redemption. This was sort of a bedrock theology underlying everything that they believed about themselves as a people. 
They had experienced it. They had heard about it. It had been prophesied and proclaimed. They even greatly anticipated a coming redemption and a coming redeemer. All of that theology comes behind Paul's thinking in 1 Corinthians 1.30. Now knowing that, it's, it's not surprising that when we get to the New Testament, its opening themes take off on this same runway, the runway of redemption. In our, in our Bibles, Matthew comes before Luke, but if we pay it, they, they really are explaining the same story in, in, in its opening pages. So if we read Luke chapter 1, it's sort of setting the stage for everything that comes after in the New Testament. In Zechariah's prophecy concerning his own son that we know as John the Baptist, he begins by speaking of the Messiah, the Christ. In Luke chapter 1, verses 68 to 70, Zechariah says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, who was a descendant from Boaz and Ruth, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. In other words, Zechariah, as he's, he's bringing all this to the forefront in this prophecy, he sees the coming Christ as the fulfillment of the Redeemer-Redemption language of the Old Testament. God is the ultimate Redeemer. We need redemption. Here comes God redeeming His people in the Messiah, the person of the Christ. And so Paul takes up that same theme. And he uses the same words to describe the work of Christ in our salvation in a, in a past and present sense. Romans 3.24, he says, We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That, that's the status of every believer. We're justified right now by His grace through, a, through the redemption that is found in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 1.7, Paul teaches us that in Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. We've already got it. Redemption is ours, Paul would say. In Colossians 1, Paul teaches that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have right now redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9.15 teaches us that Christ is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. Christ's death was in the past. Christ's death redeemed. And then when that death is applied to any believer, they are redeemed in that moment by Christ's death. Titus 2.14, Jesus Christ gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to buy us back. From lawlessness, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. We're already redeemed. We've, we've been redeemed by the work of Christ. And that other related language like buying and ransom also characterizes the New Testament teaching on salvation and what Christ has done. 1 Timothy 2.6, Christ Jesus gave Himself as a ransom for all. 1 Corinthians 6.20, you were bought with a price. Same idea. You've been redeemed. You don't belong to yourself. Glorify God in your body. Why? Because your body's not yours, it's God's. Revelation 5.9, speaking of Christ, by your blood you ransomed people for God. 
from every tribe and language and people and nation. It's already happened. The blood has been shed. The people have been ransomed, bought, redeemed. These passages all show that what Christ has done for us in the past in salvation is considered a redemption. God is the Redeemer. We need redeemed. The promises were set forth. The Redeemer is going to come and buy the people back. And we see that fulfilled in Christ. But... We also see the same language used to describe the future of our salvation. Luke 21, 28, when you see these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. It hasn't happened yet in this sense, but it's drawing near. Paul says in Romans 8, 23, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And that's important. This redemption, we are still eagerly waiting for. It hasn't happened yet. The redemption of our bodies. Ephesians 4.30, he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. When you read that, you know what he's talking about. He's talking about the final day, the last day. The day of the Lord. The day that leads into eternity. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, as we just saw, the earnest of that inheritance, until we acquire possession of it. Well, when will we acquire possession? The day of our redemption. We get the thing on the day. This redemption, again, hasn't occurred yet. So redemption applies to things in the past, things at present that we possess, but also to things that are still future, that we don't have yet. Now you might wonder, how can that be? How can we be both redeemed and also awaiting redemption. Well, take for example two texts that I've already read. Ephesians 1.7, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. There, the, the, the redemption that we already have applies to our being bought back or delivered from the guilt and curse of sin. The redemption through His blood The forgiveness of our trespasses, a spiritual redemption. We've already received that. Our our trespasses have been forgiven. But then in Romans 8.23, we saw that language, we're eagerly awaiting for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, our physical flesh. And that's the difference. The future redemption has in mind the deliverance of our physical bodies from the effects of sin, specifically physical death. So what do we already have? We've already received this spiritual work of redemption. We've already been bought back, so to speak. We've already been made the property of God in that spiritual sense. And even now our physical bodies belong to God. They are His. But they still have the effects of the fall. How do we know? Because we're going to die. Our bodies are going to be put in the dirt. So we're still awaiting a future aspect of redemption that applies specifically to our physical bodies. It's the same, or same idea as we saw in sanctification. There's a complete work directly associated with the definitive nature of Christ's death and resurrection. He's died, He's been raised. Therefore, when that's applied to us, we've died and we've been raised. But there's also the outworking of that in, in particulars, in our members, as Paul calls them in Romans 6, our, our flesh. There's an incomplete work 
that is rendered incomplete because we are still fallen creatures. Something has to go further. It's the same with redemption. There is a completed work. Why? Because the definitive nature of Christ's death and resurrection. It's, it's complete. We have been redeemed. And yet there's this future redemption associated with the consummation of Christ's work. There's work still to come. For me, the most helpful analogy is using the picture of first fruits. If you plant a garden, you might, in, in, in one season of the year, you, you till up the ground. At another point, you plant your garden. And then as you begin to, quote-unquote, harvest, that might span months. You, you might harvest some things early, but you're still waiting. You might have cucumbers, but you're still waiting for tomatoes. You might have, you, you've already got strawberries in the fridge, but you're still waiting on pumpkins. Same garden, same tilling work, but the harvest is, is expansive. And that's the same idea that happens in our salvation. Christ's work, His definitive work, lays the ground of it all. Some of the fruits of Christ's work we see in an instant and right now in our lives. But there are other fruits that we will not see, we will not experience until He returns to finish or consummate the work that He begun. So it starts in the Old Testament, runs through the New Testament. We see this past, present, and future aspect of redemption. Obviously the question is when we get to 1 Corinthians 1.30... What is Paul referring to? The word itself doesn't trigger a required placement in category, past, present, or future. The word could go either way. But remember what we've already seen. Christ is righteousness to us. The righteousness of Christ earned in the past by His living and by His dying, the if we might want to say the one act of obedience or the obedience of one summed up in His ultimate obedience unto death on the cross, He wins or procures a righteousness that is actually His. We weren't there. But then that is imputed to us at the moment of first faith and we are declared righteous based on what He has done. At the outset of our salvation, Christ is righteousness from God to us. Okay, then sanctification. Well, where does that pick up? Well, there is an aspect of sanctification that starts right there at the beginning, like justification, but it actually carries on and goes throughout our Christian life. We're made more and more holy. We're purified over time. So we've been justified at the beginning. Sanctification takes off. Already in the language, if we're dealing with these three words, we've only got three and there's already sort of a step one, step two image in our minds in a process, would we not expect that the next word takes us into step three? I think that's appropriate. And that's pretty much unanimous in, in interpretation of this. Having covered our entrance into salvation and our journey through the Christian life, wouldn't we now expect that Paul means to take us to that final stage? I would say yes. The redemption that's referred to here is that which is still future. The redemption that is still drawing near, Luke 21, 28, which we eagerly wait for, the redemption of our bodies, Romans 8, 23. When will that come? The day of redemption, Ephesians 4, 30. So to answer our question, what is redemption? 
in this passage, we would say it is the final stage of our salvation. When we are completely delivered from every effect of the fall in body and soul and made fit to dwell in the bodily presence of God forever. That's what this word redemption means. Now, another more familiar term for us would be glorification. That's when we typically think in in order of salvation terms, we think justification, sanctification, glorification, like Romans 8 has it laid out. Here, the word redemption is synonymous with what we think of when we think of being glorified or glorification. So we, we read righteousness, sanctification, redemption. If we're thinking in a, in a systematic theology way, we might read justified, sanctified, glorified. That's what he's saying. Now, having said that, redemption here is synonymous to glorification. We cannot let that truth rob us of the meaning of the word redemption. We don't just say, well, redemption here is basically referring to glorification. Let's just say glorified. No, what Paul means is redemption. We are to understand glorification specifically in terms of redemption. John Murray says, quote, The glory awaiting the people of God is conditioned by the thought of redemption. In other words, it's not the other way around. In the, we, we tend to think of, use systematic theological terms and read them into the Bible too far. The concept of being glorified in the Bible is applied to God and His Son way more than it is to us. What term would be applied to us? Well, glorification is there, but there's also this idea of redemption. So glorification, we might refer to as complete redemption. Or to be glorified is to be completely redeemed. Or if you've read Murray's work, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, we could say redemption here, or glorification rather, is redemption completely applied. Totally and in its fullness applied. The state of glorification then, we have to understand, is something bought something paid for, something ransomed by God in Christ for us. Our being glorified is simply Christ taking actual full possession of all of that which is His by divine right. He has a right. He has a title to it. Our glorification is that. It's the climax of Christ's plundering the house of Satan and taking back all that was robbed of Him. The climax is when we are glorified. Now, just a a few statements about glorification. Glorification is our entrance into the, the, the final state or the eternal state, as people call it. It is that state of perfected existence and bliss in which we will exist with Christ forever. Last week we called it final sanctification. Souls being made perfect will be reunited with bodies made perfect. Murray again calls it the complete and final redemption of the whole man. The inner man and the outer man completely, fully, finally redeemed, saved in all parts. That's glorification. Our spirits 
are made perfect at death. When you die, if you're a believer, in that instant, your inner man, your soul or spirit, same idea, is immediately made perfect. The spirits of just men made perfect. That's what's in the intermediate state right now. The, the only imperfection that we might ascribe to those spirits is they're disembodied. They've been separated from the body. When you die, your body is not made perfect. Your, your body is uh, drained of all of its innards, filled with something to make it look alive a little bit longer, sewed together, put in a box and put in the ground where it will eventually decompose, rot, and turn into dirt. Your body is not perfect when you die. What does that mean? That means the effects of sin, corrosion, decay, death, are still in your physical body, even when your soul has ceased to sin. Glorification, or final redemption, is the reuniting of perfected spirits with bodies that have been raised and perfected rid of all and every effect of sin, all decay, all, all corrosion in, in, in every part. They're brought back together so that we are right as humans as the way, in, in the way that God made us to be, body and soul. That's, God made us to be body and soul together. When that's separated, that's death. That, that's not good. That's the effect of the fall. That's because of sin. When they're brought back together, this is, this is glorification, or in this text, this is redemption. The final stage of our salvation, when we are completely delivered from every effect of the fall and sin, in body and in soul, and made fit to dwell in the bodily presence of God forever. Question number two, how is Christ our redemption? How is Christ our redemption? And, and at this point now, I may go back and forth using the words redemption and glorification, but I want to make sure that we, we, we don't lose the idea of purchase and, uh, and, and uh, acquisition in the word redemption. Because of Him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us, ultimately, redemption. If we're thinking of redemption in this sense, of that final and consummate stage of salvation, in what ways do we see Christ as the substance of that work. Well, first, all of it, all of the work is attributed to Christ. We clearly see Christ as our redemption by noting the specific roles that He has undertaken in our redemption. And there are four of these, four roles or categories, four parts that Christ has played or plays in this work of redemption. The first is Christ, I'm calling Christ is the patron of our redemption. The patron, meaning an advocate who undertakes to advance a cause. Nowadays, all these podcasts, you've got to sign up to be a patron. What do you mean? Well, I'm, I'm committing myself to give money to advance your, your hobby. Okay, that's, that's a patron. I'm, I'm buying into your cause. I believe in it, and I'm going to give what I can to advance it. Christ is the patron of our redemption. And what I mean by that is... Christ has entered into a covenant Himself. He's entered Himself into a covenant and has undertaken to advance or bring to pass this work of our redemption. In eternity, before the foundation of the world, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit entered into a covenant 
together to save sinners. Now that salvation was not just, let's get them free from their sins. It wasn't just, well, and after that let's make sure they get a little bit more holy as they live. No, that salvation is not completed until we're glorified. That's the end of it. Now, for, for, for Christ's part, the part of the Son, we learn in John chapter 10 that the Father gave the Son this charge or this commission. Go, lay down your life for them, and take it back up again. That will be their salvation. That was a part of the agreement. That's what the Son's agreement was. And we know from Psalm 40 that the Son's disposition in that was, I delight to do your will. What you give me to do, I take it and run with it. That's, I'm ready to do this, to lay down my life, to take it back up again. That's why he said, this charge I've received from my Father. That's why he came. He entered into that covenant. Now, what do we typically call that covenant? If you've got a, a systematic theology book, that covenant is called the covenant of redemption. Not just the, the early parts of salvation, not just covenant of justification, not just the covenant of forgiveness of sins, the covenant of redemption, the whole thing. Christ has from eternity been the patron of our redemption. He was the advocate who undertook to see the work through to its very end. He was on board. He said, I hear what you got going on. I'm on board. Put, put me down for, for seconds. I'm, I'm buying into this. I'm for the plan. And so he undertook to advance the cause of redemption even at the cost of his own life. He was the patron of our redemption. Secondly, Christ is or was the price of our redemption. Christ is the price of our redemption. Remember that to redeem or to ransom means to buy. To buy back or to buy out of. There's something that belongs to someone. It's fallen into the possession of somebody else. And that person goes and says... I'm here to retake possession of what is rightfully mine by paying the price, the required price. To redeem is to take back by paying the price. So what was the price of our redemption? The answer is it was the life of Christ Himself. The life of Christ Himself. The, the, we could say His own outpoured blood. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. For there is one God... And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. That ransom is the same idea as redemption. He gave himself as the ransom. Mark 10, 45, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. It was His life, His outpoured blood, which was the purchase price of our redemption. Not just our justification. Not just the forgiveness of sins. Christ shed His blood to guarantee that someday your body is going to come out of the dirt, perfected, immortal, reunited with your spirit, and made ready to live in His presence forever. He guaranteed that that would happen by pouring out His own blood. The work we typically refer to the shed blood of Christ as, as merely these, these early stages of our salvation. Well, I've forgiven of my sins, and you know we just sort of trail off there. No, Christ's blood sealed the covenant of grace, the eternal covenant. 
It is the blood of the eternal covenant. He bought the whole thing. He laid down his life to guarantee. And those early stages of salvation cannot be divorced from the consummation. If you're justified and sanctified, but you're not glorified, you're not saved. You're, you're just, your body just rots in the ground. It's an incomplete salvation. So Christ himself is the price of our redemption. Number three, Christ is the power of our redemption. Christ is the power of our redemption. The fact of the matter is that this final stage of our salvation, redemption, is going to result in a, a drastic transformation in every one of God's elect. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 15, 50-53. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. We cannot even begin to imagine the change that was going to take place. We can't fathom it. We try to figure out what does this mean. We can't describe it. This change that will take place. That, that mortals are going to be clothed with immortality. Perishable bodies are going to be made imperishable. No corrosion, no aging, no exhaustion, no, no getting tired, no, no skin blemishes, no, nothing, nothing. Imperishable. Now, that's the redemption of our bodies. Now, the fact is, what the Bible describes as a multitude which no man can number, from every tribe and language and people and nation, every saint from the beginning of the world to the end of the world, from every place and every time, is going to undergo this transformation at the exact same time. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, an innumerable host of mortals are going to be raised and put on immortality in an instant. Now, again, we can't, just, we can't explain it. We can't even fathom What's going to happen? We, we like to talk about things like uh, nuclear power, you know, the, 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 the splitting of an atom, all the, all the power, all the, the, the power of the sun, the burning of the sun, etc., etc. We can't even conceive of these creatures, creaturely things. Now, this is a power that makes those look like nothing. It, we might almost imagine like a, a burst of instantaneous divine power. Now, what is this power? Well... Because I wanted to save another verse for the next point. I'm going to use Romans 8.11. And I'll, I'll back it up in the next point. Romans 8.11 says, If by, or if the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Now, I grant, the reference here is to the Father. The Father raising Christ, but the Father raising Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 9 of that same chapter, that same Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. So it's 
it's almost as if the Father, by the power of the Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ, actually raised up Christ's mortal body, and that same Spirit dwells in us, and He's the one who's going to raise up our mortal bodies. Christ is the power. In other words, it's, as it's been said, quote, the persons of the Godhead are co-active in the acts of redemption and will also be in the consummating act, our redemption, our glorification. So the power behind this is ultimately the power of Christ. It's the power of God which will enact this great and mighty change in all of us. And the power of God is nothing different than the power of Christ Himself because He is God. Christ is the power of our redemption. Fourthly, Christ is the pattern of our redemption. Christ Himself is the pattern of our redemption. We saw this briefly last week. This final stage of salvation called redemption or glorification results in a great change that will last forever. Some of you children have probably seen or watched or learned about a caterpillar going into a cocoon. When it comes out, it's not a caterpillar anymore. It's a butterfly. It changes. It, when it goes in, it comes out as something almost completely different. Same creature, it's just changed. There's a change that's going to take place when our bodies come out of the ground. A great change taking place in every saint all at once. What will we be changed into? We know what we are now. We know what our bodies look like when they go in the ground. We walk by the casket. Oh, they look so precious. No, it didn't really. didn't really look like them. You could tell that's not who they were. Kind of green, kind of weird. That's not them. They're already corroding. Something goes into the ground. What comes out is... is in some way different. It's been changed. It's the same body, but changed. What will we be made into? The answer is, we will be made to be true and accurate image bearers of God, but more specifically, of the man Christ Jesus. We will be changed to be like Christ's body. Now let me read this passage. It's Philippians 3, Paul makes this point, and this is also vindicates the previous point. Philippians 3, 20 and 21, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. How? By the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. So who's going to perform this work? The Lord Jesus Christ will perform this work. By what power? His power. The same power that He uses to rule over everything. And what will we be like? What are we going to be changed into? Well, we will be like His glorious body. And that's astonishing. This is another one of those mysteries. Jesus Christ is God. He's also man. God incarnate. Right now, Jesus Christ is man raised from the dead and glorified as to His human nature. The human body that the man Jesus has this instant is not like our bodies right now. It's, it's different in some way. It's not even like the body that He had prior to His crucifixion and resurrection. He has a new, glorious, glorified body and when He returns, He is going to change our bodies to be like His. Now you say, what is that like? I don't know. 
Everybody wants to say the things that are... We want to go to the things that we still understand about our physical bodies now. Like, he ate fish. Well, there's, there's more to glorification than that we're going to be able to eat fish. Um, you know, he, he passed through walls. Do we get that? He just showed up in rooms. Do we get that? I have no idea. I don't know. The Bible calls it a glorious body. When he returns and we see him, we shall be like him, for we'll see him as he is. Our bodies will someday be changed to be like His glorified body. That's the pattern. He's the patron, the price, the power, and the pattern of our redemption. And then in addition to these things, going back to the, the, a previous point made in the verse, we ultimately trace our redemption back to our union with Christ. He is our redemption because redemption comes to us through union with Him. Let me try to explain this. Because we are united to Christ, our redemption, what we've been talking about here, the redemption of our bodies, glorification, is directly related to His final and complete glorification. Or we might say the final stage of His manifest glory before all creation. When He comes in glory... We will be glorified. It goes together. The final climactic glory of Christ on the last day results in our redemption, our glorification. We will be like Him. Why? Because we'll see Him. When He comes in glory, we look, we're changed. Somehow. That's, that's what it says. His glory results in our glory. But here's what's, what's astonishing is that our glorification... This redemption of our bodies will actually then result back into greater glory to Him. Why? Because our being glorified is the accomplishment of what He paid for. So there's still a, a, a manifestation of His glory waiting to be revealed because the fullness of what we will be has not yet come. Our being glorified is, is like Christ finally taking possession of, finally acquiring the fullness of what He put into layaway at the cross. In other words, when we are glorified, all of creation will be able to stand and witness the fullness of what was actually achieved at the cross. And that then results in more glory to Him because He's the one who done it. His glory produces our glorification, and then our glorification then mirrors back to Him more glory and praise and honor. A greater manifestation of His glory. Or think of it this way with regard to what we've talked about in the past. The, the chief end of God is to glorify Himself by saving sinners through Jesus Christ. The chief end of the man Christ Jesus is to glorify God by saving sinners. Well, the salvation of sinners is not complete until we are finally redeemed, our bodies are redeemed and glorified. Therefore, the chief end of the chief end of God is the supreme glorification of Christ, which can only happen once we are glorified. We are a part of what God has done. Or if we want to use the language of Edwards, the end for which God created the world will be achieved only when we are glorified. 
When we are finally redeemed, that completes the work that God, the work for which God created the world. And that won't be only to our glory, but to the glory of Christ. We won't experience redemption until Christ comes in power and great glory. And Paul's words in Romans 8, 17, we will be glorified with Him. His glory and our glory, they're together. His glory is ours and our glory is His because of the eternal union that we share with Him. It almost sounds, sounds irreverent or blasphemous to say it. But the reality is there is no Christ without a people. You're not a mediator if you've only got one side you're dealing with. If there's not two sides, you're not a mediator. Just as there has never been in the mind of God a Christ without a people, a groom without a bride, a head without a body, so there will be no glorification of Christ apart from the glory of His people. Well, think of a wedding scene. The shining glory of God in the face of Christ will be seen more fully than ever before in the moment when He finally beholds His glorified, spotless bride. When He is able to see with His human eyes the fullness of what His bride has become through His acquisition, through the purchase of His blood, He sees what we have become. Then His face will glow with delight and pleasure and love for us in a way that's never before been seen. And that will manifest the fullness of the glory of God in His face. Then we will see the true and complete happiness of God in Christ as He sees the completion of His work and He will say once again, Behold, it is very good. Or, God has given us a person who is our redemption. Christ entered into a covenant for our redemption. He gave His life's blood for our redemption. It's by His power that we will be redeemed. And when we are redeemed, we're going to be made to look like Him. All because we're united to Him. We're in union with Him. He's, he's our patron. He's bought. He, he's, he's, he's all in. He's slid all of His chips across the table. His own blood is he's, he's in for our glorification. Our salvation cannot not reach its end. When He comes in the final stage of the manifestation of His glory, we too will be glorified. So then what is, what is the application or what do we take away from all this? Why did Paul say this to the Corinthians? Verse 31. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's the application. We ought to be boasters in God. Anything not God, not worth boasting in. Nothing. The Corinthians were boasting. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. Well, I've got this. I've got that. Christ takes them down the, takes them up to the mountaintop and shows them their salvation. Do you see anything here to boast in? They say, all we see is Christ. There. That's the point. There's nothing else to boast in. We ought to be boasters in the Lord who has done all of this for us. Let's pray.